Since Genesis chapter 3, there's been a, a covert operation to lead people to discredit the Word of God. And in discrediting the Word of God, then the repercussions of that is, is that one is then led to question the character and the very nature of God. As Satan stood in the garden, uh, tempting Adam and Eve with these words that, did God actually say, You will not surely die. See, up until this moment, God had created things, and, and the Bible said that it was good, and it was only good up until a point, though, because then God began to realize, or he knew in his sovereignty and in his creative uh, ability that he, he knew that Adam was not like any of these other animals. And he said, this is not good for this man, this human, this Adam, to, to be alone. And so he, he creates one to, to be with, with this man. And then he, he tells them, man, you, can, you guys can do whatever you want to on this planet. You can govern, you can steward. I am, I am giving this creation to you to, to steward and to worship me in this creative order. And I will walk with you in the cool of the day that you will know me. And you will know each other. And yet, no sooner than we see this in Genesis chapter 1 and in Genesis chapter 2, by the time we get to 3, that we see the great enemy, sin, Satan, and death, appearing in the form of a serpent and, and at the very tree that God said, you can do everything here. You can, you can do anything that you want except for this one thing. And yet, in his own mission... Satan is here to, to tempt our first parents, Adam and Eve, away from the Word of God, to, to question the very Word of God because he had told them, if you will eat of this, then, then you will surely die. And yet the, the enemy is coming and he is using the very Word of God and twisting it for his own agenda. He is manipulating it for his own mission. He is, he is calling this brother and this sister away and, 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 and planting seeds of doubt in their minds. Did God actually say, Eve? Does he really mean that you will surely die. And then from that moment, throughout the, the Old Testament, this, this same story is being illustrated over and over and over and over and over again in the lives of this creation. In the lives of humanity, the question is continuing to be illustrated throughout the Old Testament into the New Testament and into today. Is God really 
God and does God mean what he says? And yet there is the belief again over and over this circular motion inside of the Old Testament, inside of the New Testament, and inside of our current lives is we have, whether we would say this or not, have come to the conclusion that we make a better God than God does. See, for thousands of years, as we watch from this moment inside of Genesis chapter 2, we watch as, as the Jews do several things. As they add to God's word, they, they will then take away from God's word. Then they will emphasize extra biblical traditions and make them equal to God. And in, even in some cases will lose the, the very word of God. For long periods of time, not even know where the Word of God is within Judaism, within the temple. That it's become dusty. That it's become moth-filled. That it is, it is not being read and it is not being practiced. And yet these people are claiming to be the chosen people of God. They're claiming to be the saved ones. They're claiming to be the blessing amongst the nations. And yet they have taken away from, they have added to, they have equated tradition to the very word of God. All the while, every time that they do this, are distorting God's very character and His very nature. To the point to where you get to the book of Malachi, as I quoted last week and talked some about, that from Malachi to the last Old Testament prophet by a man named John the Baptist, that there has been now 400 years of silence from God to His people. He has turned them over. Is there a remnant? Of course. But generally speaking, that these people have been turned over, they've been in and out of bondage and captivity until John the Baptist, the one that the Old Testament tells us will prepare the way for the coming of the Messiah until he shows up on the scene preaching in the wilderness that they needed to repent and turn for the kingdom of God is at hand, and then follows that up by saying, blessed is he who comes to take away the sins of the world as he is pointing to God in the flesh, and his name is Jesus. If you have your Bibles, turn with me first before we get to Galatians to the Gospel of Matthew. The Gospel of Matthew chapter 7. This is part of, of Christ or the, the greatest sermon to ever be preached. This is the, the Sermon on the Mount. And as, as Christ, as God Himself, has been watching His people kind of ebb and flow in and out of His Word, Jesus shows up on the scene 33 years or so, or 30 years into his life, and he is, he is preaching that this kingdom has come, and that he is ultimately the kingdom, that he is the Savior, that God's word
word that was in the Old Testament, constantly pointing to the coming Messiah, that Jesus, that he is it. And he, he stands up on this mountain and he begins to proclaim the, this beautiful sermon in a portion of that in chapter 7, verse 24, when he says this. Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who who built his house on a rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house. But it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like the foolish man who built his house on the sand. The rains fell and the floods came and the winds blew and then beat against that house and it fell and the great and great was the fall of it. See, Jesus did not sing God's God's plan. He did not draw pictures of God's plan. No, no, he preached. He did not just simply come to illustrate the gospel, though he did do that. He he preached, he used his mouth, he, he spoke words, and in that is initially from the very get-go, is saying that everyone hears these words of mine, that the word of God, and that if one's life is built upon them, that when the rains come and the winds blow, then that house will stand because it is built upon a firm foundation. And yet the same storms and the same wind come to someone else who has not heard and not done the work and, and listen to the words of Jesus. And because of it, this man is a foolish man. See, both storms come to both people, and yet one will crumble and one will stand. It will survive because it is in the word of Jesus. They are hearers and endures of the word of God. In contrast to those who are really good at building straw houses, believing that that will securely place them in a place of protection. And yet God's word says that is not the case. Later on, turn with me a few pages in your Bible over to the the book of Matthew chapter 15. And Jesus is going to continue this kind of same theme as he is speaking to those particularly who who really know the word of God or supposed to know the, the word of God as he is speaking to the scribes and the Pharisees. These were these were, you know, Jews among Jews. These were these were men who like knew it backwards and forwards. They had much of the Old Testament memorized, and yet this is what Jesus says to those men. Chapter 15, verses 1 and following through verse 9. Then Pharisees and scribes came to Jesus from Jerusalem and said, Why do your disciples break, get this, the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash the hands, their hands when they eat. He answered them. 
And why do you break the commandment of God for the sake of your tradition? For God commanded, honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father and mother must surely die. But you say, if anyone tells his father and mother, what you would have gained from me is given to God. He need not honor his father. So for the sake of your tradition, you have made void the word of God. You hypocrites, you actors. Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you when he said, The people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. See, inside of this passage, as Jesus continues his ministry, that he's coming against those who, who would, we would consider scholars, that these, these people are nerding out on the Bible. Like, they, they know what they're talking about. They're really good at, at slinging Bible verses, probably, from, again, from the Old Testament at people and, and holding them to it. And yet, when Jesus is speaking to them and they come to him, what are they edifying? They're not edifying the word of God, but they are edifying the traditions of men. They, they are equating man's religiosity and man's religious preference and traditions, and they are equating that to the very word of God. And yet when Jesus speaks into them, he does not speak into them more traditions, does he? But, but rather, what does Jesus stand on? The word. You say this. Why do you hold to these traditions yet negate this is what God says? Same problem that we see in the book of Genesis. Same problem that we see throughout the Old Testament over and over and over again. Same problem in the early episodes of Jesus' ministry that are the same problems that are taking place right here when tradition and culture and religious systems have become higher authority than God's word. See, Jesus himself was constantly having to reform the lukewarm Jews by bringing them back to God and establishing his word as the final authority. See, brothers and sisters, we must come to truly not just understand, but truly believe that, that Jesus does have a way that he does have a standard and that, that God himself is who God declares that he is. That his, his character should not be in question. That his word should not be in, in question. But that, that Jesus, did you know that there are, 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 yes, there are many implications, but our desires as biblical Christians is not just in the implications or to come up with a plethora of interpretations, but our desire is, is a heartfelt digging into the word of God that we want to know its original and true meaning. got one slide. I've got several, a few of you. If you could pull up the first slide, uh, Trevor, that would be awesome. This is what I'm getting at. That God, Christ, the Holy Spirit, that 
that he has this way of salvation. The Bible says that it's narrow. That Jesus says that he is the gate, that he is the, the way, the truth, and the life. And since God is creator of all things, and that since he is, he is able to do with creation what he wills, and that he is the one who has created humanity, created these lives that we live, and has created his bride, this thing called the church, then we must understand that, that it is not up into question, but that God in many ways, many wide, sweeping, yet detailed ways has, has prepared a way for us to be and live in regards to life and salvation and the church and what his word means. Yet we're constantly drifting from this line. We saw it in our first parents. We see it in the Old Testament. We see it as Jesus has come. That everyone is wanting to take a nosedive away from the standard. And equate whatever they deem and come up with as being equivalent to God and His Word. So we go a little further in the Scripture. We have this great book that was written by this man named Luke. He also wrote the Gospel of Luke. He was a, a physician. And if you don't know this, Luke and Acts, they're actually, uh, if you want to say, um, you know, the first part and the second part are like a sequel, but they were originally placed together. It's one kind of continual story as, as Luke shares the Gospel and shows how Christ is, is the Messiah, that He is the King, and, and that from that we see the work of Jesus actually begin to spread out as the word of Jesus is then preached. It's the acts of the apostles, as some have put it. It may be better to say that it is the acts of the Holy Spirit that is the working of God through the preaching and teaching and the development and the planting of the gospel as churches plant churches that plant churches that plant churches and the, the gospel just begins to spread. And one of those places that it began to spread to is we begin to realize this in the, the book of Acts chapter 13 is this, this area, this place, uh, this, this country, Galatia. And it's kind of, it's made up of several different cities within it. And so Paul goes there and he does not preach his own word, but he begins to preach the words of Jesus. He begins to call these Gentile kind of rogue people on the planet. They were, uh, you you know, uh, polytheistic, they were just wild and crazy, and yet, yet Paul is commissioned by Jesus to go share the gospel with these people, the Gentiles who live in Galatia. And the Bible tells us in the book of Acts chapter 13, verses 48 through 49, that Paul plants the gospel here in about 47 AD, and listen to what the, the effects of preaching the gospel are. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole 
region. Notice what they were glorifying and rejoicing in. That they had heard the word of the Lord. That they were whole, they were seeing in the, in the hearing this, this gospel message of Jesus Christ, which is, it's not a gospel of legalism or a, a gospel of liberalism, but is a, a gospel that is found and only offered in all of the religions in the world that, that Jesus, everything that God has required, Jesus has met it to the, to the nth degree that he is literally bled out for the, the wrath of God to be satisfied and yet on the third day was resurrected in hopes to, to reconcile us to an all holy God that, that our sin was imputed to Christ and yet Christ's righteousness is imputed then to sinful man and when they begin to hear this Jesus and, and what did they begin to rejoice in and glorify in? It was, it was not merely the words of Paul or of, or of Socrates or of Plato but no it was the, the word of the the Lord was preached there, and that's what changed people's lives. And what it happens? The word of the Lord begins to spread throughout the whole region. See, if Jesus is in your life, brothers and sisters, if you have been trained by the word and the word was with God and the word was God, if you've been changed by the word, if you've been changed by Jesus, it is not something that can be merely contained inside of your flesh, but it is a burning fire that is shut up in your bones that must be released. Word is not silent. And yet something really frightening happens to the churches in Galatia. If you have your Bibles, turn over with me to the book of Galatians. As it was read earlier, as I told you just a while ago that Paul plants the gospel and then the church is planted inside of Galatia in the year 47 AD. By 48 AD, so within a year, Paul is updated on, on what's happened to this church. Within a year of the gospel spreading, within the year of people worshiping and rejoicing in the word of the Lord, Paul gets wind that it is not going good in Galatia. That they have wandered from the truth. And so within a year, Paul's got to try to do some course correction. He's got to try to reform the church back to the word of God. Listen what he says. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. See, within a year's time of the gospel being planted, in the year's time within these people worshiping the God, much like the parable of the, the, the sower, we, we see that it is once the gospel has been planted that, that sin, Satan, and death will, will come and try to, to rob that seed from allowing it to reach its full potential. This is what's happening inside of the church in Galatia, I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting. 
Paul, when he says, I'm astonished, he's saying, man, I'm, I'm shocked, I'm, I'm outraged. This is just a sucker punch to Paul. He did not see that this is coming. This is unlike what happened in, in the letter to the Ephesians where it seemed like it took some time to get where they had mistaken identity. But no, this is happening early on in the life of this church as they were, they seemed to be worshiping God, worshiping his word. They were deeply rooted and yet within a year's time, they've fallen away. They're, they're, they are drifting. See, a messenger had brought Paul an update on the churches in Galatia. And to his surprise, the Galatians were adding the law of Moses to the gospel of Jesus Christ. They, they wanted to make the Gentiles become Jews before they could really experience salvation through Christ. See, they want to say that they were preaching Jesus. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is the only way to salvation. But in order for you to really hear and to know this Jesus, you must first convert to Judaism, and then after becoming a Jew, then you can become a Christian. They're adding to the works of the law and placing them like a yoke of bondage upon these Gentile believers. These are known as the Judaizers as they sweep in to lead these people astray from the one and true gospel. See, Paul was fearful that the churches were deserting the word. See, when it says deserting, we're talking about the idea of allegiance here. Where does your allegiance lie? And, and, he, and he's saying to them, so quickly deserting him, so quickly deserting Jesus. And when we think about this idea of de deserting, we had this idea of a, of a, a soldier who deserts to the other side. That a soldier who's fighting for, we want to say, the, the good side, the, the righteous side, has all of a sudden decided to transfer their allegiance to the enemy. As a Lee Greenwood, proud to be an American, are you not shaken and just dumbfounded whenever you turn on the news to see an American citizen who has committed, committed uh, treason and has deserted the United States of America to go do, be a militant Muslim terrorist? It's always like, how, to, how does one reconcile that? And yet, people are doing that to Jesus. See, the word had lost its potency. See, we've got to be careful, brothers and sisters, not to add anything to the gospel message, but we must also be equally mindful not to subtract anything from the gospel message. He continues this in Galatians 1, 7 through 9 when he says this, not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one preached to you, let him be accursed. As, as we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. See, Satan was preaching a different gospel to our first parents. 
Sin, Satan, and death continued this pattern throughout the Old Testament as they they preached a different gospel to the chosen people of God. And, And so much that by the time that we get to the New Testament, that these people are far from the true nature and purpose of God and His Will. He is, he is far away from them. God exists, yes, but he is distant from them. And yet the gospel of Jesus, we serve within Christianity, not a God that we are trying to reach, but a God that has come down to us. And that changes everything. Changes absolutely everything. Over and over. We are told within the scripture to have sound doctrine. And yet when we don't pursue sound doctrine, everything becomes distorted. See, sound theology becomes a mangled, entangled web of suggestions and self-help and justifications for all sorts of behaviors. When, when he uses the word here, distort, it means to stretch, to corrupt, to reverse. And, and this is an interesting word here, picture, that, that the word here, distort, means to pervert. The word of God had become lukewarm in their hearts. It was perverted. He goes on to say that if anyone comes and preaches another gospel than what you have heard, then let them be accursed. Let them be damned. That even if an angel came from heaven and preached something contrary to the very words that have been spoken through the prophets, through the preachers and teachers, through Jesus himself, through Paul and the apostles, then let them be damned for this false gospel. Yet the fastest growing religion in the world is is called Islam. Whom believe that the angel Gabriel showed up to a man named Muhammad for 20 years and told him the real word of God. Visited by an angel and told him a different gospel. Within Mormonism, another uh, Mormons are probably the, the nicest people that you are going to meet on the planet, and yet the basis of, of their beliefs and their gospel is the, the visitation of angels to, to Joseph Smith. And, and if you read their gospel uh, in, in, in parallel to our understanding of the New Testament though, and the Old Testament as well, is that those two things cannot coexist. They're not the same gospel. Paul is saying, let them be accursed. Let them be damned. They are misled. And yet within even the Christian church, we can easily jump into the boat of legalism or we can jump into the boat of liberalism and yet Jesus saying, stay in my boat. Stay in the word of God. You are not saved by legalism and you're not saved in such a way that allows liberalism. But you are saved in me. I am your Christ. I am the Lord. I am God. Brothers and sisters, how easily we drift from the God and his word. 
How many of you remember the first year of your faith? It's interesting that everybody in our country right now is watching a celebrity who's professing Jesus. Just waiting to see what happens. When we're not mindful of our own. See, in that first year, the Bible says to return to us, Lord, the the joy of our salvation. When you first become a believer, you're you're like an unfettered balloon. You're you're just being set free. You're, You're excited about God. You're excited about His Word. You're excited. You want people, you're that annoying person that won't shut up because you are talking about Jesus. I mean, you really believe because you haven't been churched up enough and been educated enough that when you read the Bible, the things that happen there could actually happen. That you're longing to see people healed. That you're you're longing to see revival take place. That you're, you're longing to see a mighty move of the Holy Spirit that He would once again provide a, a pillar of, of light. For us to be led by and to know exactly that God would would visit with us in his word. That you're gobbling up the very word of God only for you to get older and for your life to look nothing like it did when you first became a believer. That's lukewarmness. Most godly people in this room are those of you who should be the most godliest people in this room or those of you who have been following Jesus much longer than the rest of us. Oh, how easily, church, we drift from God and His Word. If we skip ahead about 1,500 years from this mark, Trevor, if you'll hit that next slide. So there for a while, as the church is growing inside the New Testament, again, they're, they're staying. We're, we see some major dips, right? We see lots of ebbs and flows, even within the New Testament. And yet by the time we, this, this new thing, this, this, this Christianity, small Christ, it is now spreading throughout the known world. And in doing so, um, by the time that we get to the 1500s, the church has become everything but the church. It had become an empire. It had become a political force. It was controlling kings and kingdoms. It was making lots of money and it was oppressing people by keeping the Bible in a language that the common person could not read and understand. See, when you can do that, when only the the church leadership can can read it and understand it, then Scripture can be, be manipulated to mislead people primarily for for economic gain than for Christ's likeness. You can make the Bible say whatever you want it to say if you're the only one in the room who could actually read it. 
And so by the time that we get to the 1500s, this is what's taking place. The church had become so distorted that it equated the words of an invention called the Pope and traditions and made it equal to the Word of God. Do you understand how scary that is? That the Pope, whatever he says, is inerrant. That means that it's without error. That tradition... If, if it is tradition in the church for you and I to eat Captain D's every Friday night or Long John Silver's or oh, let's go on over to Harper's to get some catfish, that if the church deems and the Pope deems and the council's deem and the tradition dreams every Friday we're going to Harper's for some from catfish and some coleslaw and you don't do it, then you have sinned. Now, the Bible doesn't say anything about eating fish on Fridays. But if the church does and the Pope does, then it is equal to the authority of God's Word. It's so dangerous within the early church. Only, I know 1,500 years may sound like a long time to you, but that is not a long time in the history of humanity. Within 1,500 years, this is what's taking place within the church. Though there are, are many who faithfully followed Jesus and read the word and, and they kept coming to the church and they said, we need to turn back to God. We need to turn back to his word over and over again. We saw these little increments of, of people coming and, and saying, man, we, we've got to change this. We need the word to change this. We need our hearts to be changed for Jesus and his word that we have, we have drifted far from this. And, and yet... Nothing happened. It gained no traction. During this time, the, the early church was really into building very beautiful buildings. But in order to build buildings, what do we all know, Mission Church? You got to have money. $100,000. Is that clear? And guess what they determined? We're going to come up with something called indulgences. And indulges will allow you to pay about a, a half a year's wage. And, 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 and this was made famous by a man named Tetzel. And, uh, and, and, and the church approved this. This became tradition. It became approved. And, and what they told people were was that, that you can pay a, a half a year's worth of wages and that you can give it to the church and that will guarantee that you'll never have to go to purgatory. That you won't go to hell. That it's a, it's a get out of hell free card. All you got to do is pay some money. We're going to build a building with it. But if you pay this money, and, and because the people were biblically ignorant, because they did not have the word in their own language, and because it was coming from the, the church, because it was coming from the poets, because it was coming from tradition, then you saw all these poor, truly 
poor and oppressed people in the middle of the dark ages doing whatever it took because they did not want to go to hell. They did not want their family members who were already in purgatory. And by the way, the purgatory isn't in the Bible, but they believe in it. And, and, and they're wanting people and their family and for each other to be rescued from this, this very thing. And so they've got to come up. They're, they're doing whatever means possible in order to get this money together to give it in the form of indulgences so that they would be saved or that their family members would be saved. You could literally buy your way out of hell. Well, during this time, there was this young monk named Martin Luther who wasn't even a Christian. Yes, you heard me. And he began to read the Bible, even though he was a monk. He began to study the Bible, because he could read it in its language, in Latin. And he, as he was a teacher, and a, again, a monk, and a priest, and all these sorts of things, he began to read the Bible, and then see all of these issues that are taking place in the church, and as an unbeliever, could notice that one of these things is not like the other. That what we read in the Bible is not found in the local church. And so he, he wrote out this thing on called the 95 Thesis. And we get this kind of like, we get this idea about this as we like to romanticize about it, that, that, that he went to the, to the door and had a big old Thor hammer and a big old nine-inch nail, not the band, an actual nail, sticks this 95 Thesis and pretty much is, is telling them all where to go as he pounds on the Wittenberg Castle Church door, the 95 Thesis. We give Martin Luther way too much credit because that was not his intention at all. Up until this point, he was probably a little bit of a rascal, but probably pretty low-key. And that actually the, the door of the church acted as a bulletin board for the church and the community. He was not doing anything weird. It was a bulletin board. Hey, my band's playing here. Right? And it was meant, it was written in Latin, so who couldn't read it? No one but the educated people. It was... Hey, all it was was, hey, the Bible doesn't line up with this. Can anybody, can we have a talk about it? Let's debate this out. Let's have some conversations amongst the church clergy, and we'll get this worked out. Okay? Because something is not making sense to me. So he nails it, he goes about his business, not thinking anything else about it. Karl Barth, who's a, a theologian, once said of this later, that you can imagine that, that what happened with Martin Luther was, it's like he's a blind man who was walking through a church. And as he's walking through the stairs of the church, he trips and falls. And when he trips and falls, he reaches out for something to help him not fall to the ground. And when he does, he grabs a rope and he falls down to the ground, unbeknownst to him, that it was in the middle of the night and that he just rang the church bell and woke up everybody. It was an accident. And the reason why was because some students around the Wittenberg who were, who were getting educated there and who could read um, 
Latin and without permission from Martin Luther, guess what they went and did? They went and copied it in German. And there was this thing that had happened inside of the creativity of man. I believe that this is from God. Where man had created this thing called the printing press. You know, the first copy machine. And so without permission, those two students or those students went and and copied it in German. And they said within two weeks that it had spread throughout all of Germany. And so now Martin Luther's getting called. And these are some serious accusations that you're making. And, and over the next five years, we see this kind of up and down, up and down, up and down relationship as, as, as Martin Luther is, is trying to come to grips. And in the midst of it, Jesus actually saves him. And when Jesus saves him, then it is like the awakening of a lion that is riled up inside of this man that at all costs, he is calling the people of God back to Jesus, back to his word, and at all costs, he is willing to go from here until Rome and wherever it is in order to state his case that Jesus is Lord, that we are justified by faith, that the word of God needs to be in the hands of the common man and common woman. So in about five years, it gets really serious. And he's standing on trial. Because they're considering putting him to death for what he has stated. And so they ask him to recant. And what a lot of people don't know is, is that in asking to recant, He goes, "Uh, uh, can I have 24 hours? (laughs) Like, I need to really think about this. I know what you did to John Huss, who sounds a lot like me. You burned him at the stake, because that's what they're accusing now Martin Luther of being, was a heretic. And he begins to kind of back down. And it's said that this is an exact paraphrase, but it's like that, that, that Martin Luther stepped out and, and that he, he went and, 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 and he just, he was a man of prayer. Jesus had truly changed his life and that, that he began to cry out to God, kind of like Jesus within the garden. Lord, if, you, if you're real, then save me from this. Come to my defense. Protect me from from this. I believe in your word. I believe you, Jesus. I believe that we are saved by grace. I believe that this is the word of God, that it has the ultimate authority. I believe all of these things. And so, Lord Jesus, come and, and protect me. And nothing happened. But he was resolute. So he goes the next day, and they ask him to recant. And this is the famous quote that is appointed to him. And listen to what Martin Luther says. Unless I am convinced by Scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of the popes and the councils, for they have contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. I cannot, I will not recant anything. For to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. Here I stand I can do no other. May God help me. 
Amen. And with that, the Reformation spread. The Reformation inside of the 1500s wasn't trying to create something new, but rather it was trying to be bring the universal church back to its original intent that can only be found in the Word of God. One of the key phrases that was drummed up from this period of time was a Latin phrase called sola scriptura. It, it means scripture alone. It, it translated further, it means that only scripture, because it is God's inspired word, is our inerrant, that means without error, sufficient. What is it sufficient in? It's not a recipe book. It doesn't mean that it's sufficient in telling you how to cook. But what it does mean that it is sufficient in salvation, bringing one to salvation, and also keeping one in sanctification. That's what it's sufficient in. And then ultimately, that it is the final authority of the church. This doesn't mean that we don't have other authorities such as bosses or parents or employers or pastors or, or these sorts of things, but that all of those things are not equal to the authority of the Scripture. That the Scriptures is an umbrella that we are standing both on, but also underneath. We are covered in it. That when it, when it all comes down, it doesn't matter about our opinions or personal preferences. What matters is the Word of God. That's what we mean by sola scriptura, that is without error. That means that it does not contradict each other. That it is sufficient. That it is the, the power to save in Christ. That it is the power to keep you saved in Christ. And that if we're going to argue and debate, if we're going to have any sort of rule of life, then it must be the authority of the Scripture. That's why we read earlier 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, all Scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof and for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped in every good work. The Old Testament prophets, Jesus, Paul, the reform, Reformers are all fighting and standing on and under sola scriptura. But we must understand, church, quickly and briefly, there's so much more to be here. We must understand that what they were fighting for, we are still in that fight. It did not end. And yet many people have no idea that there's a war going on because they're not participating in it. The Reformation hasn't ended, but, but every season, every generation has to be called back to reform, back to the person and work of Jesus. We hit that last slide for me. Mission Church, I, I believe that we are in desperate need once again for a reformation that must begin on the person and work of Jesus at his outline inside of Scripture. Because I would say that this is where the Protestant church is today, that it, it, it could be covered up with drifts. We've gotten so far away in so many ways that we have downgraded the gospel. That we have downgraded the character of Jesus. And you can find whatever denomination and whatever belief system that you want to find and use Christianity as a junk drawer where it has absolutely no sense and matches nothing to do with the Bible and yet claim it to be Christian. 
This week, some of my friends, this is what they said to me. I'm a Christian, but the Bible contradicts itself. Now, that's a contradictory. I'm a Christian. Everything in in it is somewhat true. I'm a Christian, and I believe that the Bible to an extent. I'm a Christian, and I agree the most things. I agree with most things, but not everything in the Bible that it says. I'm a Christian, and I believe some things in the Bible, but not all. I'm a Christian, and I believe in the Bible, but some of it is outdated based on how our society has changed. You know what that is? Not Christianity. See, many of us, when we hear these types of statements, we would be really startled by them. We may even be tick, uh, like tempted to snicker, to eye roll at such statements as this. But, but may we be humbled this morning that though many of us would disagree with the statements, our lives and the way that we are living them is reflecting a belief that's in agreement with them. That's practical atheism. Satan's strategies has not changed, brothers and sisters. It has not changed. Instead of having one pope, you know what we have? 2.2 billion of them. And they all claim to be Christians. And they all get to interpret the word the way they want to interpret the word. They all get to live whatever they want to live, however they want to live it, and call it Christianity. And it is not. It is religious pornography. It is leading you to believe that you have a relationship with Jesus, but when you scale back all the layers, all it is is a made-up, photoshopped, plastic version of the real thing that we're all convinced we're in a relationship with. It's porn. Brothers and sisters, No reformation ever happens without death. And sometimes that is a physical death. Other times it is a daily taking up your cross and following after Jesus. But both require death. By the end of the Reformation, they had this statement in Latin, but this is the English translation. Always be reforming according to to the Word of God. Always be reforming according to the Word of God. There's a thread of distorting the Gospel present in every generation and thus the reason for the need of the Reformation is to take place over and over and over and over and over again. Mission, I'm asking you to join me and to join others in asking the Lord to bring reform, to bring revival, to bring renewal. And yet throughout history, when God has chosen to pour out His Spirit in a specific and monumental way, the revival has always been parallel with repentance and a return to the Word of God. Not out of a means of salvation, but because you are saved. Isaiah 48 says, The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.
Brothers and sisters, the time of biblical ignorance is over. It is over. I long to see God move in all of us. I'm asking you to to renew your commitment. I about went to my upbringing. We're about to have a rededication service. KBC would probably really like that because I'm counting them as salvations. Um, If y'all get baptized, that would help us out too. But a, 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 a renewed commitment one to Jesus. How are you going to know his character and his nature? How are you going to be able to trust him when the storm comes? you got to know his word. I'm telling you what, you guys. Since last Sunday, this has been a very tough week. Probably one of the toughest weeks for me in years. Pastorally, physically, emotionally. I preached on Sunday, and then I preached the gospel to about 60 college students this week in a classroom. And between church people and lost people and sickness, and just I felt like we went to a funeral last Sunday. And that is a good thing. This reformation doesn't happen without death. Death to self. Life in Christ. Will you renew your commitment to Jesus and renew your commitment to daily engaging in His Word, not just for your sake, but for ours? Let's fight the drift. Let's fight the drift shoulder to shoulder. Don't be distorted, don't be deceived in a culture that will easily lead you to be deceived that you are embracing a Christianity and a Christ that is so foreign from what His Word says. So Lord Jesus, bring renewal, bring revival, bring reformation. In Christ's name.